It's been a long and winding journey, but we're here. Day one of the Michael Peterson trial. We're going to contend to you that after a vicious argument with his wife, Michael Peterson murdered Kathleen in cold blood. And where is this elusive murder weapon? They can't find it because it doesn't exist. A trial simply two sides competing to tell a better story. And 12 jurors declare one of the stories the winner. And that story becomes justice. Welcome back to the official HBO Max companion podcast for The Staircase. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. We're officially at the halfway mark in the series, and it seems it's the end of the road for Michael Peterson. He's standing trial for the murder of his wife, Kathleen Peterson, in a very packed, very poorly lit courtroom in Durham, North Carolina, in 2003. Over the course of the next few months, hours and hours of testimony, and the appearance of one very dusty blowpoke, Michael is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Right, so this is episode four, remember? And honestly, if this were any other true crime story, this would be the end. But this is the staircase. And as we know, there's always another false step and another weird turn in this maze. Which is why we are so lucky to have, once again, the creators behind the series as our trusty guides. For this episode, we sit down with series executive producer, showrunner, and director Antonio Campos, and this episode's co-writer, Emily Kazmarak, to talk about why Peterson's epic legal drama was compressed here into a single episode, and reveal more details about this mysterious French woman in white. Later on, we'll speak with actor Michael Stuhlbarg, who portrays defense attorney David Rudolph, on just how deep he got into the role of playing Michael Peterson's devoted lawyer right down to the annotated, color-coded script. Let's dive in. I am here with the episode co-writer, Emily Kazmarak, and director, executive producer, and co-showrunner, Antonio Campos. Emily, Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nancy. How are you? Thank you. So excited. Me too, because this episode is just packed like a musket of stuff that is happening and i i'm i tried to jot down some key points but there's just so much going on so let's just dive right in okay emily you co-wrote this episode with whom i co-wrote this episode with craig shilowich and he is awesome and we had a blast doing it so i would imagine as a writer this would be the hardest episode to write because there is a big part of this, which is courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. And if there is any type of crime drama chestnut now, it's a courthouse courtroom drama. What? How did you think about writing this differently so that it would be unique? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think, you know, we were both grateful that this was a co-write because I think it, it was really helpful to put two minds on it because we knew, you know, this was going to be the trial episode and and because the trial is a lot of what most people know about the case. Um, right. You know, the pressure was on to really pack it in into one episode. And I think, you know, when when thinking about the courtroom scenes, 
we wanted to sort of flip what what normally happens when you're watching a courtroom scene, right? So normally your focus is on what's happening on the stands and and the testimony, mm-hmm. but we wanted to do something where the focus was really on the the gallery and people's reactions and the family and the characters. Um, and you know, we talked about sort of this this theater of of glances and and looks and comments and you know to be with the kids as much as possible and and really to kind of make. Um, you know, just always keep the family at the, at the forefront of our minds. Uh, so I think that mm-hmm. was sort of our, our guiding principle when writing the courtroom stuff. You know, we had a lot to play with structurally, um, but it certainly was a challenge to kind of weed through the content and figure out, okay, what of this trial is, you know, truly sort of um, juicy enough to, to put into the narrative version of, of the show. It, furthermore, and I think this might be a question for Antonio, I feel like this episode is also this kind of peak moment where we are looking at sort of fact and fiction or let's say drama and documentary merged together with the decision to show this seemingly sort of archival footage that we're watching. So, Antonio, can you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah, I mean, at some point, one of of the things we realized in constructing this episode was that to get everything we need to get in was going to be impossible. I mean, the documentary had, I think, four episodes dedicated to the trial alone. So we had to figure out, well, like like um, Emily said, it's like, what what is the most important stuff to put in? And then sometimes the most, some we were just like, well, we just need this line, or we just need this, this idea or this piece of evidence kind of highlighted. Um, we we landed on the idea of opening with a footage being input into a computer. Mm-hmm. And it, then it was like, well, we need to kind of, we need to loop Sophie into this. And it was a natural way of getting her in. And, you know, without the audience realizing there's a bigger connection here, she could be talking over this stuff and commenting on the stuff, but without the audience realizing that she's intimately involved with this process. So that's how we landed on that that device. Now, we always knew that we were going to film a lot of the stuff in the trial on video. And I, I'm always excited when I can shoot stuff and have to intentionally make it look bad mm-hmm. and try and figure out that <laughs> for equation. Yeah, I was wondering if there's now like a special filter that you can put on a digital camera to make it look like it's video. The way that I always do it is, and, and I think a lot of people believe this, is you have to go and get the cameras from the time period and shoot with those cameras. And so that's what we did. And we had about 30 of them because they they busted up so frequently. <laughs> so we had about, we had, and they were so cheap. They were only a couple hundred bucks each. So for that, all the stuff that you see in the opening montage, that was all just shot on those video cameras. Wow. So there was no backup plan. And I think, you know, when we were thinking about crafting this episode, we really... There was a lot of, you know, pouring over witness testimony and really trying to boil it down to its essence. So what is the storytelling value of each witness, right? We had moments uh, that we knew we wanted to capture that we knew were sort of essential to how we were assembling the narrative of the trial, which, of course, is a much abridged and, you know, sort of (laughs) quicker and spicier uh, version than the trial that, you know, happened in real life, which was extremely long. Uh, Emily and Craig really did an amazing job doing that work early on. And we didn't have the luxury of shooting like just transcripts of trial. 
One of the other reasons why it kind of had to be the way it was is because that was the schedule. I mean, we had to make this day. And so there wasn't like, let's just shoot and shoot and shoot and see and then edit. So here we are in episode four. And it's in like the middle of the series. And this is this moment where we've been sort of getting these glimpses and senses of this fantastic woman in white, this character that we don't exactly know where she fits into the story. And in the beginning of this episode, you know, it's Juliette Binoche and she sits down in front of this camera and it feels like we're finally going to understand who this woman is. And instead, she pivots and I think asks the most important question of the entire series. It's a big question, Emily. So where did you decide to put it right up front? You're just casually asking me what is justice on a podcast. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're breaking a script, there's it's a very iterative process, right? There's many there's many drafts and many sort of attempts uh, to crack an episode, especially something like this, before you find um, sort of all the pieces of the structure that that make it sing. And I think when we figured out that that the the Sophie voiceover was going to be sort of a framing device for the episode. Yes. I think a lot really clicked into place because we knew that we were going to throw so much at the audience that we sort of needed we needed an overarching convention to kind of pull and lead the viewer through the episode. And then we were we got really interested in sort of the push and pull between um b- between Sophie and John Xavier and um so we became really interested in, well, what would a conversation between the two of them look like? Like, what does it look like if Jean is interviewing Sophie? And Sophie, and by this time, by the end, we'll figure out that Sophie is the editor of the whole original documentary series. But right. at this moment, we're like, who, who, who? <laughs> we're like, who's this, who's this glamorous French lady? Right. Yeah, totally. Always. Oh, I'm always. Yeah. I, I, and it's, that would have been enough, by the way. She's just stunning. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, she's not just an oracle. She's a really important person in this series. Right. Right. And and so we sort of I think we sort of landed on this idea of, well, a dialogue between the two of them might feel sort of like existential. Yes. And um, and conceptual. And and I think once we landed on that, we started uh, coming up with the questions that Jean might ask her all as sort of a roundabout way of getting to his ultimate question for her, which is what is your relationship with Michael Peterson, which is really where, you know, uh, once she starts to answer that question, the audience starts to lean forward and be like, whoa, what? So I wanted to get back to this um, decision to compress what is the, the entire sort of thesis of the other series into one single episode and some of the things that you had to do to move this along so that it's a that it's you know it's comprehensive it's not just a freight train that's flying past you I mean I think one thing that uh, we thought about constantly was okay for everything that we're showing in the trial we need to also be exploring that moment's impact on the family Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a lot of, you know, for example, this moment when, um, you know, they bring in the nanny from Germany and there's sort of this this bomb drop. Um, you know, she's a very volatile witness and and kind of stirs everything up. And, you know, my first instinct when I encountered that in, in the trial transcripts was just like, oh, my gosh, like, what was this like for Martha and Margaret? Like, how, what, how do you go home from that? day of trial. So re- remind me, 
um, that that was real. That was an actual person in the trial. Yeah. She's a composite character. The, she's a composite. Yeah. So the aggregate information is accurate, more or less. It was just it compressed yeah. into one person again as a as a necessity because you're putting it all in one episode. But it's I think it's important for people to remember that um, this isn't a fabrication about the sort of alleged abuse of Martha in particular, which is leaves her reeling. And that's mm-hmm, not a device mm-hmm. by you writers. It's it's an important detail in the actual trial. That detail really um, was nowhere in the documentary. That was a detail that I learned about for the first time in Diane Fanning's book, Written in Blood. You know, from the beginning, it was like the documentary can only be one resource. We have to look everywhere because there's just, I mean, John, John Xavier just couldn't fit everything into the story. Um, the thing about Martha and that childhood and, and other things about Michael's, you know, temper were things that weren't addressed in the documentary, but were very much a part of Diane Fanning's telling of the story. I think this case, you know, we talked about this at some point, that the case is sort of like an, an Escher drawing. It's like a staircase that winds back on itself and like is impossible. I mean, we went back and forth so much in the writer's room. You know, I think when when the when we first started the room, we probably spent the first week going back and forth about, you know, what do we think happened here? Right. And and we would sort of talk ourselves in and out of every possible outcome. Um, but, you know, I found that the more I knew about the case, the less I knew what had happened. Um, the closer I got to it, the more elusive the answer was. That's really the inspiration for the main title sequence, which is, you know, they they had come with this idea of a glass house, which we thought was a really cool idea. And it just became clear that the Escher-like images, the impossible kind of images, we wanted to bring it in and create a space in that house that was more like a maze than it was like the whole main title sequence is the idea of it is that you sort of start off with one line that then grows into a maze that then reveals itself yeah. to be the house. And that's very much the experience, I think, of of the staircase. Well, Emily, I think I can actually ask you a question directly. You know, you've described the show that you worked on, Monsterland, as sort of blurring the lines between monster and man, mm-hmm. which leads me to think, OK, when you're looking at Michael Peterson, were you trying to understand the blurring of those lines, too? It it was always going to be about complexity and paradox and nuance with Michael, right? Because, you know, you look at him in one light and he is impossibly charming and compelling and a beautiful speaker and a loving father. Mm -hmm. And then you look at him in another light and um, Jim Harden, you know, says he beat his wife like a dog, you know, right? It's like, is that true? If that's true, then does it invalidate all the other stuff? And, you know, so I think it's um, sort of a false binary. Um, I think that, yes. you know, we we both, we all contain both. Um, and I think, you know, the it's a question of degrees. And for Michael, um, you know, we, I don't think we uh, purport to answer the question of how monstrous is he, but we certainly explore all of the different shades and possibilities and kind of leave it up to the viewer to to draw their own conclusions. Michael Stuhlbarg plays David Rudolph. And in this episode, we see some of the potential missteps he made in the original trial. You know, in the documentary and in subsequent material that Jean Xavier shot, uh, David Rudolph's like, I don't understand it. What went wrong? And it sounds to me that you guys had the benefit of obvious foreknowledge, but 
did you learn as you were moving forward? There were things that he did wrong and that might have hurt the case that he didn't realize. It was such a balancing act because you want to be truthful to what happened. But I remember there were also a couple of moments where, you know, we were like, okay, well, at this point in the story, um, we really need to believe that the defense believes that they have the upper hand, right? We talked about the, you know, David Rudolph's closing statement in real life. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a, you know, it, we, we tried a draft where, you know, we were very true to what he did in real life uh, and sort of how he structured it. And then we sort of were like, in the context of a story, it doesn't feel strong enough. Like, it, we don't know that our, like, if, if we do it really the way that he did it in real life, um, will the audience believe that will it really be suspenseful because we could see lots of flaws in how he in how he structured his closing statement in real life and so you know for the sake of of story and drama um we actually sort of needed to restructure his closing statement to make it um a bit more commensurate with how powerful jim harden's closing statement was um in order to give the audience that feeling of you know this is really head to head and we don't know how it's going to go right so I think, you know, um, definitely there's there's places throughout where, you know, you see the human error in, in retrospect. And um, sometimes that works for your story. And sometimes you got to dress it up a little. In the original documentary, you see a guy in episode eight post-trial who is shaken. Mm. Like he's genuinely shaken after that trial. And he his like whole foundation, like everything he thought about what he did and and what the law meant was was put into question. And so that's true. I think that we've created a very human David and probably a David that's closer to sort of maybe who he he is when he's, you know, um, off camera. He also had a very hard job when you think about, you know, the prosecution and some of the techniques that they were uh, deploying. Uh, you know, they they were playing into, you know, sensationalism and bigotry and various, you know, they had a lot of... Um, clickbaity uh, strategies that they could deploy to kind of, you know, get... That's a great description for it, And I And I think that, you know, whereas David had to say something that's, you know, quite, quite, quite simple, but but not very sexy, which is, you know, reasonable doubt, right? Like, you know, he, he, he essentially just had to say, okay, we know it looks bad, but there's not enough to convict, right? Which is way less sexy than look at all this, you know gay porn that this guy had on his computer and isn't that terrible and of course right. he killed his wife right I loved writing uh David and and his voice because he has such like an amazing cadence and um that was one of my favorite parts yes. of working on the show was just trying to capture everybody's voice I'm sort of like a dialogue obsessive um it's it's my favorite part and so I think he he really you know came to life for us and I do think it's a sympathetic um but complicated portrayal so we we started the episode of this podcast with challenge number one, which is the trying to reboot the courtroom moment to be something fresh and interesting. Here's your challenge number two, the blowpoke, <laughs> which is the sort of the, the MacGuffin, the thing that everybody wants and is looking for and then ends up sort of being fundamentally meaningless. How did you decide how you were going to treat something that's essentially meaningless in the end, but is so important in the documentary. The blowpoke is one of those things. You, 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 need the, you need the blowpoke in order, you know, to tell the staircase story. And 
For us, it, it just, it's this amazing tool because it says so much. How meaningless it is in the end is really important mm -hmm. because they, the prosecution that ultimately wins this case puts everything on it. And I would bet that they knew at some point that it didn't make sense. For sure. She could have died from a beating without a weapon. It didn't, didn't mean it wasn't, but it didn't have to be. And so I'm pretty certain that the blow poke, they had to keep going with it because they committed to it. They put so much on it. And the thing, the reason why the blow poke, I think, succeeds for that jury probably is because it's imbued with so much emotion because Candace gave it to Kathleen. I think the blowpoke is is also so awesome because to me it's a metaphor. To me, the blowpoke represents easy answers, right? It's very tempting to to think, oh, this is the the key that fits in the lock, but ultimately it's air. It's nothing. It's such a great symbol of how you know there are no easy answers in this case, and and just when you think you have the thing that's gonna unlock it all, you know, it it kind of falls apart in your hands. Let's talk about Clayton and his past which the documentary never revealed, and why everyone thought he should never be put on the stand to talk about finding that blowpoke. Clayton, you know, uh, this, this, no, this idea of spring break was a real thing. They always referred to Clayton's stint in prison as spring break. Clint, Clayton went to prison for planting a, uh, a bomb Duke, in order to create a diversion to go and steal a laminate machine to make fake IDs for his, him and his buddies to get beer. This is all true. <laughs> That's the first time David Rudolph and Michael ever met was he tried to get David Rudolph to represent Clayton. And he didn't. Right. Clayton ultimately just took a plea and he did his time. He's four years in a federal prison, as we learn in this episode. Okay. Four years in federal prison. Yeah. In Fed, yeah. That is not nothing. And he came out and sort of got rehabilitated and got back to school and has started a family. But you can tell the energy in the house is like, oh, my God, Clayton's getting on the stand. And Clayton may be the worst person to get on the stand. And so it just felt like, well, this is the point in the story where the home needs to become also a courtroom. And... And we're, how how far can we push that? And that was also another fun scene. I think Emily and Craig got a really fun episode. It was one of the most challenging For episodes, sure. but it had some yes. of the best sort of most interesting family dynamic scenes to play out. And it's not really Clayton's fault because he inherited it genetically from his mother, Patty, who also seems to have this incredible gift of saying just the absolute worst thing. Well, there was some blood. <laughs> that was Ron. Ron Garrett had said at some point, well... The best proof that Michael Peterson didn't kill Kathleen was he didn't kill Patty. And that yeah. was, that was, it was like, so good. What? So it was good. just, it's kind of perfect for all the, the crazy stuff that <laughs> they all said, all the kind of like dark, macabre humor that they had. So then there is something that you do show in this series, and something they couldn't possibly have shown in the documentary is a point of view of playing out one of the three theories of how. Kathleen arrives at the bottom of the staircase. Can you talk a little bit about that? From the beginning, something that was always important to me was that we recreated, to the best of our abilities, what could have happened that night. Um, a lot of people 
dismiss that theory, the idea that Kathleen found something out that night and that he uh, went crazy and killed her. That was like one of the most challenging scenes. For sure. What could Kathleen find that wouldn't leave like a, a, a digital trace, you know, like wouldn't be proof that Kathleen saw something that night? Was right. like maybe she, Maybe he was a little sloppy and he left stuff on his computer uh, screen. He didn't close all the windows. Then it was like, well, how does that fight play out? Mm-hmm. And that was always that was always the black hole in my mind. Yes. It was like because yeah. it was like I want to be able to do that, but like until we got in the writers' room and we could have that discussion ourselves and and let that kind of like play out, it it didn't exist. And then we shot it, and I have to say, I think it's a very convincing sequence. Um, more convincing than I imagined it would be. And the thing that was more important than the beating itself was the argument. Yeah. It was really the argument that's the the star of that sequence is the argument. We talked so much about, okay, like they're having this argument that escalates and escalates, um, but then there has to be something that she says that causes him to snap, right? And I remember, you know, thinking so much about this idea of – of shame and 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 shame being this emotion that can cause people to do really crazy things and um yeah. and so i think we sort of zeroed in on this idea of whatever she says has to touch some deeply ashamed place inside of him um that kind of like ignites you know slowly and then all at once the real michael peterson is so charismatic it is hard to imagine it and that's part of why i think this story has been so compelling for people and why it seems so unbelievable because he's so he's so many things but yeah. in the way this is played you actually get to see holy shit yeah like that's yeah. what it would have looked like if he did it mm-hmm. yeah each one of these depictions they they all had to be equally convincing mm-hmm. that's kind of the that was the challenge of each one is that they each had to be equally convincing we wanted to approach each one as though this is what we believe this is how it happened but the fact that we come out of that sequence and you've seen Michael do something horrific. Yes. And then you cut back and you see his family devastated and you see him try and console them before he himself breaks down. You, I believe that the audience will feel the way that I feel, which is despite the fact that I've just seen how he could have killed her, I still feel so bad for the man at the very end, and I I sympathize with him. And I don't know if he's a killer, even though I've just seen him do this thing. And I think that that, to me, was a really, like, it just felt like we succeeded in doing something that we set out to do, which is we could show you the guy killing somebody, and then the next, but you still wouldn't be sure that you just saw Mm -hmm, him kill somebody. mm -hmm. Right, yes, right. And that is the show, and that's the complexity of... The dynamics in the show. You know, this is something Brandon, our producer, noticed first, and I think it's something that you might be proud of, Antonio, because it is a, a brilliant choice of that you don't hear the verdict being called. Yeah, you sort of see it by the kids' yeah. reactions. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't want anyone to say the word. Um, it was really important that you didn't hear the word. We always knew that that was the way it was going to be. 
that's just like another example, right, of, of trying to sort of invert the courtroom dynamic where it's like, you know, ordinarily you would there would be so much focus. You'd shine such a light on that moment of the verdict. And, and in our show, it's so much more about the aftermath. So when it comes time where, you know, at the end of the script that you're writing, where you now get to have the great writer pleasure of this exquisite reveal that we figure out that this that Sophie, this French woman, is the documentary editor. And it's like, ha ha. <laughs> How does that feel knowing you've got that coming? And is that a pleasurable thing to write? It's so gratifying. I mean, as as the sort of original writers of the script, you definitely have things that you're like hoping make it. You know, certainly the end reveal with Sophie and using the letter and and all of that was was one of those moments that you know as the the different drafts would come the different production drafts would roll through you know Craig and I would be like is is it still there is it still there you know and I think um, <laughs> it's so yeah it's so uh, you you know you always have your darlings and uh, sometimes you got to kill some of them and some of them make it and uh, and are on the screen and it's really really gratifying when that happens and Sophie as as this kind of central figure in this drama was yes. so important. And so to see that land at the end of episode four, where you're like, oh, now I'm invested in this person and this journey, when no one expects that. The story is way more complicated and interesting and fascinating than you could imagine, and way more human. When I got the documentary, I watched the documentary, and then I met the producer who's, who who had the rights and sent it to me. And he sat me down. He said, I'm going to tell you three things about the staircase. He said, one is there's way more to this story than than there is in the documentary. Two, the director and the producer of the documentary cannot agree about what happened that night and how they feel about Michael Peterson. And three, the editor of the documentary is in a relationship with Michael Peterson. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, this is this is this is amazing because it what it did and why it's exciting to talk about now is because it's obviously couldn't talk about it before in this this conversation. But what was so exciting about that is like I was just like, this is this allows you to talk about the making of something in a way that gets into so many interesting, sticky, hairy situations. And allows you to explore the making of something that is considered true, mm -hmm. a documentary. I mean, I, I feel like we were, this will be the moment, I don't know if we can, if HBO Max will have Google Analytics, but it feels like this will be the moment of the entire series that it gets Googled hard. Mm -hmm. Is Sophie real? Is this real? And how this, for me, changes the scope of the documentary as a whole. Yeah. I question everything once again. I didn't think that I could think anything new about the staircase. And here it is. I'm thinking something new about the staircase, which is just a delight. So thank you. Yeah, this is great. You guys, I mean, just to end this episode, what is left? Are there more surprises and twists in store as we go into episode five? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. And Emily... Uh, to, to both you and Craig. Thank you. Fantastic work. It is not easy putting this together. And Antonio, thank you for creating once again another inventive episode. And I look forward to speaking with you all again. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, y'all. Take care. Bye, guys. Michael Stuhlbarg has made a career out of playing powerful, complicated men. Most recently, as big pharma billionaire Richard Sackler 
in the series Dope Sick. But there's no one more recognizable in the true crime world as David Rudolph, Michael Peterson's devoted attorney. Stuhlbarg is also known for his attention to detail as an actor. And nearly every single person from the cast and crew has spoken in admiring and hushed tones about his beautifully annotated scripts, notebooks filled with research, and enough knowledge about legal strategy to earn him an honorary law degree. This includes a lot of time spent with David Rudolph himself. And he's here to share everything he learned. Not everything, but a lot of things about David Rudolph and The Staircase. So welcome to the podcast, Michael Stolbarg. Thank you. <laughs> How much did you know about the Michael Peterson case and the death of Kathleen Peterson before you were approached about this project? I had seen the documentary before, and oddly or not, uh, I started watching it again before I knew that this story, this production was going to be happening. So it was really fresh <laughs> in my mind when the proposition of it came up. Uh, so I was very familiar with it. But the funny thing was I, I hadn't remembered seeing the final episodes for some reason. And maybe I hadn't. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but anyway, I was familiar with it, and uh, it had captured my imagination and my attention, you know, originally when it first came out, and uh, it continues to. As Michael Peterson's case winds through the court system, there's addendums, and things keep adding on, and it's a very, very long saga, which might explain why you may not remember seeing one part, and then you saw some of it later. What did you find so captivating about right. this? I mean, you were watching it twice. It didn't make sense to me. I think all of the nuances of the case and, you know, what really happened, I think that's what it was. Plus all of the personalities of all the individuals, and they all kept us guessing or kept me guessing in terms of what, what really happened. Who was telling the truth? Who did I believe? Who did I not mm -hmm. believe? I just was kind of sucked in to trying to figure out myself what made the most sense. So you have played many characters based on real-life, powerful, and complicated men. Most recently, it was yeah. the pharmaceutical billionaire Richard Sackler in Dope Sick. But th their power is usually behind the scenes. We don't necessarily know what Richard Sackler looks, Sackler sounds like unless we were watching testimony where he's saying mostly no, no, no. David Rudolph is a completely different story. We, you had hours and <laughs> yes, hours and hours of footage to watch, and some of it was before you even knew that you would ever be playing him. So is this a, a, right. this a blessing right. or a bit of an actor's curse? Uh, that's an excellent question um, because I guess he had lived a bit in mm -hmm. my psyche uh, for quite a while before um, this project came along, and then... Um, Antonio um, hooked me up mm. with him. And so I got to spend another 12 plus hours with him in uh, his hometown uh, at his law offices. He brought me to meet his wife and his kid. And we spent some really wonderful time together. And he was an open book and made himself an open book mm -hmm. for all of us for the entire run of making this piece. 
Uh, he couldn't have been kinder if he had any agenda about the whole thing. Or his concern, shall I say, was that in his mind, it was most likely that more people would probably see uh, what we were making than perhaps had seen mm -hmm. the documentary. Mm -hmm. So in his mind, he is, I guess you could say, quite concerned about the legacy of criminal defense lawyers and has quite a bee in his bonnet about how they have been portrayed in the past. So I think it was important to him uh, that the work was portrayed in as honest and as upright a, a fashion as we could muster. And so I took that to heart. Um, to have that much information on someone, as just as you said, can be both a blessing or it can be a curse because you certainly feel, I felt, a huge responsibility to sift through all of it as thoroughly as I could. Plus, on top of that, there are podcasts right. and there's other interviews. And if you go onto YouTube, there's all kinds of footage of David doing this, that, and the other. Um, so it's helpful to a point. Uh, and then you just have to do what you've been given to do as well as you can and trust that you've absorbed what you've been given. I was thinking in a, in a previous interview, you had described sort of getting into a, a real life character as um, splitting atoms because <laughs> that's the level of that's detail. Sort of, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, acting to me is that. It can be that. Uh -huh. uh, it feels very much like that. In regards to playing someone true, however, especially if they're still living, there is an added obligation that I always feel of trying to honor them and uh, also to be honest to what it is I've observed um, and hope that some of it gets captured during the course of making the project. In the HBO series, before we see David Rudolph, we get a sense of who he is when Michael's brother tells him, I'm going to get you this lawyer. Um, and he describes what his background is and, and Michael's response is, so he's the guy you hire when you're guilty. And so you're picturing David Rudolph as this kind of slick, fast-talking lawyer, but he's not quite that. No. So how would you describe David Rudolph? David had been a part of some high-profile cases at that point in his life. So he was in the news a little bit at the time and was somewhat famous in the community. And when we meet David, I think what, the, what hopefully people will learn about him is how thorough he goes about learning about things. And uh, he certainly has a, a wonderful sense of humor. And I think hopefully we were able to capture a little bit of that as, as the story goes along. But he's very serious about what he does. He takes it very seriously. I think when um, one thinks about lawyer scenes... You know, if you're told you're being going to play a lawyer, one probably imagines these big, dramatic, like fist pounding moments like, you know, A Few Good Men or Al Pacino in Injustice for All. But we actually don't get a lot of David Rudolph courtroom drama. It's more about the relationship between him and Michael. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? In real life, the sense I got was that David believed Michael from the get go. And he's been upfront about that from the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. he gets asked the question a lot, you know, what do you think really happened? And David says over and over again, you know, I, I was there at the very beginning. I listened to what he had to say. I, I felt like he 
told the truth. He also has said in past interviews that they had a similar sense of humor, the two of them. Mm -hmm. He he called it gallows humor. Yes. Um, So I think that as far as personalities go, they got on quite well. And I think Michael appreciated David's tenacity and also his honesty. He shot from the hip and he told him what the circumstances were on every step of the way. Uh, so I feel like they, they appreciated each other They and David believed in Michael and I think Michael appreciated it. You know, I think that, of course, most attorneys and clients develop a close relationship. But did you get a sense that this relationship between David and Michael was closer than maybe most? Um, it seems he's shattered when the verdict doesn't go his, his way. And David Rudolph, it seems like it's a case that really dogged him or stuck with him emotionally for many, many yeah. years. It, yeah, exactly. It's It uh, changed his life, if we think about it that way. It, it kept on going and mm-hmm. going and going over the course of years. Um, but yeah, I asked David a, a, a couple of times about what the experience was watching the documentary for the first time. And uh, he said he felt almost as bad <laughs> watching the documentary as he did on the day when the verdict came in, mostly because he just didn't understand mm-hmm. why the jury went the way they went, why they didn't take all of the reasonable doubts that he enumerated mm-hmm. to heart. It seemed that uh, from the outside that they responded more emotionally rather than to the facts. And it he was all about facts mm-hmm. and was trying to make it clear that there were so many doubts that the only answer could be for them to acquit Michael. Uh, so he was, as you said, completely baffled, decimated, and he did everything in his power from that point on to try to write what he felt was a wrong. I think you probably know, especially as an actor, that you know facts versus narrative or impressions can make a much bigger difference than what people believe or presume to be true. And in the case with David Rudolph, when you were looking back at the documentary series and when you were meeting with David, did, did you have any insight into why the jury may have gone the way they did? And did it have anything to do with David Rudolph and his performance in court? Hmm. I think you'd have to ask David that. But my impression was um, that I think how Jim Harden uh, went about appealing to the emotionality of the circumstances Mm -hmm. may have struck a very deep chord with them. I think that Michael's background, perhaps some of his personality or the things that later came out in the trial may have made an impression on the jury that colored their opinion of him Mm -hmm. as an individual. Um, I think it's primarily those things. I, you know, I also sort of feel like maybe uh, I'm sure David learned something from watching the coverage of himself, but how you go about stating the facts is just as important as the fact that you're stating them. 
It is the manner in which you're relaying right. the information that maybe may have may have made a difference. And I think as we are suggesting here, he led with his head as opposed to his heart. So what I really like about the HBO series is that for the first time, you see that David Rudolph has his own personal arc. And those of us who just saw the documentary series and are seeing this for the first time wonder, wait, is this true? Did this all really happen? Was there right. a part of this that was appealing to you, knowing that there was a documentary series with a man that people thought they knew, but there's a pleasure in kind of surprising audiences with something they hadn't already known or figured out? I think that's one of the big pluses of this whole project is that if people had seen the documentary this acts more as a companion mm -hmm. piece to it as opposed to just retelling the story in the manner in which it was already told. What we learn through this HBO version is that we learn what was going on with all the other people at the time that all this was going on. We learn about their lives. We learn about the documentarians who made the documentary and about what they were going on and the issues they had in bringing it to life. And yes, we get to see what David was going through behind the scenes as well. And it surprised all of us. We kept learning new information even as we were making it. So, okay. So in, earlier in our conversation, you said David Rudolph, you know, the, the, the actual David Rudolph has asked all the time about whether or not he thinks Michael Peterson is innocent or guilty. And of course, he says from the beginning, he believes him. On top of that, most defense attorneys say they will always start with the assumption that their client is innocent. So now you might be put in the position when people watch this series that people will ask the on-screen David Rudolph, which would be you, what you think. Right. Is he innocent or right. guilty? Right. So what are you going to answer? I, it, you know, the facts point to what David believes uh -huh. as well. You know, I can only gather the facts that uh, I have been privy to. And based on those facts, it seems to me that there was enough reasonable doubt um, to uh, make it clear that they couldn't call Michael right. guilty. Uh, it isn't innocent or guilty. It is proven or not yes. proven. And I think that might serve us in future cases here as well, and to perhaps put innocence or guilt aside. I think if we're supposed to base things on how a case is presented, then based on the case, it's either yes, you proved it, or no, you did not prove it. You know, the, the burden is meant to be on the prosecution to prove their case. Uh, and in David's opinion, and in my opinion, they did not do that. Did you learn something about David Rudolph or about this case that may not have directly made it into your performance or into the series, but that you think about that, whether it's a broader idea of injustice or something about the relationship between Michael and David, something that kind of you chew on? I'm so impressed with him and what he does, trying to get people out after serving uh years of their life for things they didn't do. I just think, you know, you talk about heroes or people who spend their time in the most beautiful way. These people are out there trying to 
help people who have been abused, frankly, by the justice system. Those are heroes to me. We all have our suspicions from looking at the footage that we have been, you know, given to look at in terms of the documentary. Uh, and we'll never know what these things are. But in the end, uh, the human story is what I think cap captivates us. Um, but I, I took away the idea that I'm, I'm glad to know that there are people out there with their hearts and minds in the right places trying to help people who have suffered horrible, horrible turns of fate um, in their lives. Uh, it gives me some hope about humanity, frankly. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for your time and joining us in the podcast. I just want to say I so appreciate your time and your thoughtful responses. Thank you. And um, it's, an, it's a pleasure to be uh, uh, included in all of this. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode four. Thanks to Antonio Campos, Emily Kazmarak, and Michael Stuhlbarg for joining us today. Our next episode is just as jam-packed with people you do not want to miss, including writer Craig Shilowich, editor Sophia Subercasso, psychologist Amanda Vickery, and last but certainly not least, actress Juliette Binoche. That episode drops next Thursday, May 19th, after the fifth episode of The Staircase airs on HBO Max. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Fibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Urians. Legal by Diana Palacios. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios and David Erzua at Studio Awesome. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you have a minute, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO Max. See you next episode. <laughs>